0: This is the Skin Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Thomas Hitchcock, and here we'll investigate everything skin science and dissect it from a scientific perspective, analyze it from a medical perspective, critique it from a consumer perspective, and give insight from an industry perspective. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Uh, today I am alone in the studio with the peanut gallery as Angela McDonald could not make it today, but we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Amelia Hausauer. How are you, Amelia?
1: Good. It's so. I'm so excited to be with you all.
0: Yes, so um, I've been uh, chatting uh, for a couple of years at this point, I think, with uh, Dr. Hausauer, and we've been trying to find ways to work together, and uh, we are going to be working together. Uh, But uh, she was kind enough to uh, come onto the podcast to discuss today's topic, which is melasma. But let me give you a little background on Dr. Hausauer. She's a board-certified dermatologist and from the Bay Area, earning a bachelor's degree of arts with the highest honors in human biology from Stanford University. Uh, Dr. Hausauer subsequently earned her medical doctorate at the University of California, San Francisco and received multiple competitive scholarships. After completing internal medicine internship, she she jumped into dermatology residency at NYU, which is somewhere I'm very familiar with. And then she did an AESDS fellowship in Los Angeles. So she went from West Coast to East Coast, back to West Coast. So she must be a West Coast gal. And she currently practices in aesthetic medicine uh, and dermatology in Silicon Valley, California, where all those tech giants are. Thank you, Amelia, for joining us. Um, So, uh, why did you move from West Coast to East Coast to West Coast uh, back to West Coast? Why didn't you stay East Coast?
1: I am a West Coast girl by um, born and raised, and moved to be closer to family. I guess uh, brought my husband here, kicking and screaming, because he's (laughs) an East (laughs) Coaster. It's taking them five years to get adjusted.
0: Yeah. Well, I got to yeah. say, I have lived uh, the South. I've lived in the Northeast. I've lived uh, the Mid-Atlantic. I've lived in Texas. I've lived in the West Coast on San Diego. I have to say that other than the taxes, uh, San Diego is by far my favorite. So I'm yeah. probably a West Coast person myself, although I'm right now in, in Dallas, Texas, which is by far nowhere near to uh, West Coast <laughs> culture. Um so a I little a little different, yeah. So um I I think I'm probably a West Coast person too in the inside. Um, you know, but anyway, we are talking today. Well, before I don't want to forget we have uh in the peanut gallery we have Dr. Jose Maldonado and we have Alan, our director and producer, and then our co-producer Seti is back from her excursion across the ocean. Uh, Where were you, SETI? I was in Germany for two weeks and in Japan for two weeks. Okay. And uh, so uh, if anybody doesn't know SETI, she is half Japanese, half Persian, I believe, correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. And so she teaches me all the things that I need to know about Japanese culture. And actually, that leads me to, I don't know, Amelia, if you know, but on the podcast, I always feature a puzzle. I'm a huge puzzle fan. Yeah, I know you're yeah and so this is actually a japanese puzzle there it's called a karakuri puzzle and this is one of the new ones it was one of the christmas presents so if you're on the club they give you uh, you can sign up to get a different designer a christmas present each year and this one's called Re- regression cube or something like that. i can't remember the name now i haven't actually solved this one yet so i was i brought this one today because it's pretty cool and i always like it the the karakuri puzzles are cute usually but they're very easy and i really like them when they're harder so this one's a little bit harder so I haven't even solved this one yet. So I, that's today's puzzle. Anyway, um, t- we are talking about melasma today, um, but I'd like to open it up you know, uh, to anything that's you know, dispigmentation, but I think melasma is probably to our listeners gonna be one of the more interesting ones because we all kind of uh, understand a lot of what drives certain dispigmentation issues, but melasma is one of the more mysterious ones. Um, it's one of the ones where we have a lot of people that do a lot of things, but we don't really understand what drives it completely. But there is some new science that we'll talk about that, is, that shows us a little bit about um, what might be driving it uh, uh, in addition to what we already know. So why don't you give us, from your clinical perspective, what do you do is in your particular practice that is concerning melasma? Do you have a lot of people that come to you with this? And when you see them, what do you tell them as far as what causes it?
1: Right. So as you said, melasma is kind of this very fickle condition, right? It's something that we control, um, but we don't necessarily cure. And I do have a a large, you know, a sizable population that comes to me that has melasma, maybe that's a relic of being on the coast where it's nice and sunny. And we'll talk a lot more about mm-hmm. ultraviolet and sun exposure and how that might play into melasma. Um, but for people to kind of conceptualize and to take a step back, this is the type of pigmentation, not where it's like a discrete little um, brown spot, but where it almost looks like a net often on the skin. So it looks more like muddy patches, Or even, you know, when people get pregnant, they can have something called a mask of pregnancy. So it can be very diffuse over the face. Um, And when people come to me, I'm trying to just determine what type of pigmentation they might have, and if it falls under, you know, Mm sunspots, or if it's more in this category, and then we tackle it from a kind of a multifactorial way.
0: Right. And so I think that's one of the things that people are a little bit um what's the word uh i don't want to say uneducated because that sounds really bad but they're um not as knowledgeable about as they think that all pigmentation is caused by the same issues that can be solved by the same things and i think what you what you said was one of the things that people don't quite get which is we don't yet know any cures to melasma (laughs) and so if you actually get on a therapy and then you stop the therapy You shouldn't be upset if it comes back because there's an underlying issue involved that may not be curable but um is this something i mean do you have any insight and this is something i don't know but do you have any insight into historically is melasma something that has always been around or is it something like uh other inflammatory issues that tend to be more associated with western culture because of sanitation issues or is there uh is it a i
1: don't i don't actually have a a, I don't have a specific answer to that. I don't know. I'm My guess is it's been around for, you know, centuries. And it's more prevalent in certain populations. Um, if you look at studies, those of us who are Asian or Hispanic tend to have a higher incidence of melasma. I do think that there is more inflammation of the skin. There's more breakdown of the skin's barrier that increases the likelihood of development of melasma and so my guess is it's changed over time even though we have seen it for a long period
0: right so one of the things you'll if you don't already know this about me (laughs) which i think you do um is that i always bring it back to the the skin biome and the microbiome oh yeah because for me i think it's one of the pieces of dermatology that has been a little bit overlooked As far as, you know, what that does, you know, if you think about that, you have microbes on your skin and the way you treat them is going to influence how they treat you. So, um, you know, they're spitting out stuff all the time. So if they have the wrong food source or the wrong environment, they might spit out stuff that can contribute to disease states, Mm -hmm. which melasma might be one of them. And so let's, let's really quickly visit what we alluded to before. Um, I think, I think we alluded to this already, which is that, um, there is a publication. Let's see what year was this? It was 2022, so it was just last year in March. So it's about a year old at this point that it's been published. And uh, this, the title is Seva Contribute to Melasma Onset. And that was one that, when I saw that, that actually really caught my eye because that ties it right into the microbiome in the way that the most prevalent microbes on the skin are Ketobacterium acnes, which is a lipophilic. Uh, microbe which eats the sebum, turns into short-chain fatty acids. And so disruption of getting, when you don't have as many lipophilic microbes like malcesia or C. acnes, that can actually contribute to an excessive oil um, or excessive sebum. And my thought is, well, maybe we just don't understand how that can affect uh, melanogenesis. And one of the things that we do know is that propionic acid, which is a short-chain fatty acid that is produced by some of these microbes, actually can reduce symptoms of melasma. So that's super interesting to me because in our study for a line of products that you're aware of called Biojuve that Crown makes, we actually saw um, a decrease in some of these signs of things like melasma and pigmentation. And we were like, why in the world were we seeing that? And then we realized, oh, well, we noticed that it was mattifying. So it's eating those oils. And if we know that sebocytes are involved in melanogenesis, Maybe there's a tie there. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's actually a really great point. Um, and, you know, initially we thought about melasma as a problem of just pigmentation. We're right. over making pigment, right? And so it's just a melanocyte, the cells that make pigment. It's just a problem of that line of cells. What we now know is that it's a much larger microcosm, right? It is the interaction of the melanocytes with the keratinocytes, which are the majority of the epidermal skin cells, and even the fibroblasts and the vasculature and the sebocytes. So it's a much larger environment, and how that environment is interacting is going to ultimately impact the production and the transfer of that pigmentation.
0: Right. So um, it's, and not only that, but the microbes. Could possibly play a role as well right because if they're all right. connected in a way i guess what you just said is a brilliant distinction between what medicine is doing now and what it <laughs> used to do which is like yeah. tyrosinase inhibitor equals no more melasma but the thing is you are not treating any of the underlying causes which are inflammation and um senescence and all sorts of things that come along with it so you could be putting and this is one of the reasons i left my postdoc in tissue engineering went on to do other things because tissue engineering also is that same thing, which is like, you're putting a perfect tissue into a diseased state and then it becomes diseased again. So it's like, so I think you're, that was a wonderful way of uh, you put it as far as like, there's just so many, we're finding out that the body is so complicated and now we're throwing in the microbes on top of all the human components. So right. what what is somebody to do? What is a dermatologist to do? You know, <laughs> there's so many things to consider now. So what do you do with uh, what is... Tra- so let's, I guess, ask, what do we traditionally know of as treatments for the uh, appearance of melasma? And what changes in your mind as a clinician now that you know it's, it's probably more complicated?
1: It's much more complicated. And I think, you know, traditional treatments and ways to manage melasma rely really heavily, and these are still very critical pieces of the puzzle, right? Rely really heavily on ultraviolet sun protection as a mitigator of one of the things that we know is a real trigger for melasma. So sun exposure, we're learning more about even visible light, like from computer screens Mm -hmm. and overhead lights, all of these environmental, those can trigger increased pigmentation. So really targeting that. And then the other big piece is lightening agents. So things like hydroquinone um, Mm -hmm. or combination agents that block the production of the pigment. So, right, if you're thinking about that whole little environment where ultimately you're making too much pigmentation, we're talking about the tail end here. We're blocking that tail end. right? And so that's traditionally how we've tackled it. Now, I, you know as a provider, I'm thinking about what might be all of the etiologies and the causes and the dysregulation upstream and mm-hmm. how are we going to affect those in addition to maybe working more immediately at the tail end.
0: Right. Um, and, and so like, let's talk about some of those therapies that you've talked about that, like for instance, hydroquinone, a little bit of controversy around that. Could you right. shed some light on what what the controversy is and whether or not you feed into that controversy or whether you think it's... Uh, or if you even want to comment. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean, so controversy is multifold. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: now, hydroquinone is banned in many, many other countries. Um, you know, initial, uh, there was a lot of concern initially with potential carcinogenesis, really hasn't panned out in studies. There's also the concern with using hydroquinone for long periods of time and getting something called ochronosis, which is a different type of pigmentation that occurs. So are you getting a rebound or really the opposite effect that you're wanting? And so parsing out how to use hydroquinone effectively and safely um, can be a little bit difficult.
0: Right, yeah. have have you or others that you know of changed to other things other than hydroquinone because of the controversy? Um, I know some people use arbutin because it's upstream of hydroquinone and they feel that because the word hydroquinone is controversial. They can get away with it by doing that. What's your thought on that?
1: I, you know, I, I think that's one strategy. I tend not to steer clear of it because I do feel like of all of those tyrosinase inhibitors that we have in a bottle, it tends to be the most effective. The problem is, is also very irritating. So there are a lot of people that don't tolerate it. So Mm. even if you go get around this controversy, um, a lot of patients get too irritated, too red. You know, if you're causing too much irritation, then you run the risk of causing post inflammatory hyperpigmentation, which is
0: now you're shooting yourself yeah. in the
1: foot, right? So <laughs> it becomes a little bit tricky.
0: Right. Yeah. I I think this is one of the things that I, and I'm happy if you can like give me shed some light on your opinion on this. But one of the things that I see in dermatological medicine is that there's lots of great molecules that have lots of science behind them. Um, Things like uh, hydroquinone, arbutin, vitamin C, retinoids, and they all have their place. The problem is our skin is made to keep things out, right? And so, in order for us to get things in, we have to put them in relatively large doses which when they hit their watershed meaning like it's kind of like you put enough weight it just all of a sudden floods in and you end up a lot of times with these irritations Uh, i for instance i just simply cannot tolerate retinoids not even the cosmetic levels it causes me to not immediately but over a day or two i'll get ulcers even on my face and so uh it's one of those things where it doesn't mean it's bad it just means that How do we navigate this, especially for like, for instance, melasma, where somebody's desperate, you know, they really want, you know, to get rid of this, but things like retinoids, vitamin C, hydroquinone are all going to be irritating. You know, it's, it's, I could see where it could cause quality of life issue and depression issues on people that just feel ugly because they can't, do they just have to wear makeup then? Or what's your solution at that point?
1: I mean, so with a lot of these products, what ends up happening, and there's actual data for just using topical steroids in melasma, is that we put something that is, that counteracts the inflammation. Right. May not be the right answer, but it's an answer, right? (laughs) It's like, well, these are all irritating things, and we can kind of combat the side effects with something else. Is that going to allow you to tolerate it? Is that necessarily, you, you know, that is one way of addressing it. But I think to your point, if you can look back, Kind of backstream right if you can go all the way back and think about the environment that might be producing that pigmentation whether that's the microbes or Mm -hmm. the sebocytes or um the even the breakdown of the skin barrier and how that might contribute to the environment then you can tackle that from a different perspective that might be less um kind of overall detrimental or difficult to tolerate
0: Right. Let's talk about the sebocyte involvement with, um, have you, uh, cause I know there are people that use retinoids to battle melasma as well. Um, yeah. what, what's your take on that? Cause I know there's this new device, uh, that basically ablates the, uh, the sebocytes and, um, I'm kind of going to sit and watch and see where dermatology lands on this because I don't think it's a great idea, but there are certain applications like, um, hyperplasia and stuff that I, right. my family has that I would love to get it for my hyperplasia, I just want to keep the rest of them, you know, intact because I think you need those. But for melasma, is there a place that we, you know, there's lots of tools in dermatology that, when used correctly, I think are going to really help people. The problem is a lot of times we either over or underuse them, you know. And so, what's your thought on uh, like sebaceous gland modulators, like retinoids and lasers, you know, that that yeah. can ablate the uh, the, uh, the 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 sebaceous glands? And what's your take on that?
1: So I think there's there's two things. One, basically, as you said, it's like we throw every every device we try on every on everything or every treatment. Mm-hmm. But you really have to distinguish between overproduction, underproduction, normal production, and then right. what do you want to target? Which right. group? Because those are all very different populations, right? Sebaceous hyperplasia is an example of. An excessive growth or overproduction of oil that you might target very precisely, and that's different from somebody who has really mature skin, where we know that sebocyte and oil production declines naturally on its own, and they are then combating, you know, excessive dryness and all of these other things. And you may not want to get rid of all of their oil glands because mm-hmm. eventually down the line that's gonna that's gonna lead to problems, right? In people that have melasma, where the sebocyte is potentially critical in the etiology of the, their entire, you know, pigmentary condition. You really don't, I get concerned about getting rid of or over, um over suppressing right. the, right. The, the point of retinoids or one of the points of retinoids in melasma is because they have a exfoliative, um, effect and they change the way that the keratinocytes turn over. Mm -hmm. But doing that, you're also hitting other cell lines and you're affecting the way that those turn over. Right. And that may not be a desired effect.
0: Right. You know, one of the things that, uh, I've learned over the years is that in some melasma cases, you can actually have, um, weird pigmentation down in the dermis versus just in the normal area. And very interesting in, uh, in our labs at Crown, cause we do a lot of research in the way that microbes affect different cell types and such. Yeah. And we've found some interesting phenomena that when we um, submit different um, types of ferments from different bacteria to fibroblasts, we actually saw an upregulation of genes associated with melanogenesis, which you're like, but fibroblasts don't produce melanin. Yeah. But then you're like, wait a second, Maybe they do in the wrong conditions or with the wrong microbes. And so it starts to put a light off in my head that maybe like you were saying, there's it's more complicated. And some of the things that we need to do is rather than turn off everything for our oil glands is saying, perhaps we curate the microbes and see whether or not that, and of course it's not going to be the same for everybody. Cause I think, why don't you tell us about, is there, is there different ways in which melasma presents itself that might give you a clue that it might be a different etiology?
1: Right. So there's melasma can be somewhat broken up into different categories. So there is pigmentation that is in the upper part of the skin, the epidermis you can have. So that's epidermal melasma you can have dermal melasma where the um the pigmentation falls down into the dermis so it's deeper or you can have pigmentation where it spans both Mm -hmm. the deeper it is the more difficult it is to treat it's you know we have tools chemical peel all these other things that can exfoliate the epidermis and maybe exfoliate some of that pigmentation it is much harder to get and treat lower down and the further wrinkle and and you know, distinguishing those can be a little bit difficult and sometimes tricky to the naked eye. In a clinic, we can use different types of special black lights and other things to get a sense of where the pigment is sitting, and you mm-hmm. may target those slightly differently. One of the wrinkles with some of the treatments is that, and one of the difficulties with melasma and and why it's important to distinguish it from sunspots, is that certain lasers or other treatments can actually make it rebound and worse. And part of that may be because you're actually puncturing the epidermal dermal junction and you're getting more pigment falling deeper down. Mm. Um, And so you have to be somewhat careful because if you're causing too much inflammation and too much disruption there, it, it can have a counterproductive effect.
0: Right, uh, you know, this is all kind of making me think about how uh, I want to like start to like swab skin of melasma patients and see whether or not there are issues. Uh, you know, if because also if you're drilling holes in people's faces, that's also a place for infection to happen. That's not not in the sebaceous glands, so it's actually a place an opportunity for things like staff to ingress and. In, question is that's these are some of the staph microbes are the ones we're seeing that fibroblast production of melasma so you know i'm now starting to like wonder if we're we're just scratching the surface as far as we know like you said that it's way more complicated than we originally thought but now i think are we needing to look further into the non-human factors that affect melasma but you said it was spanish and asians that mostly are affected and then it's pregnancy associated as well.
1: Pregnancy. I mean, and, and so I think some of the racial ethnic differences all, also have to do with the different amounts of pigment that we make, right? right? So some cells are more active or have larger what we call melanosomes, which are the actual like um, little enveloped packets that deliver the melanin than others. And that partly has to do with um, distribution of pigmentation across different cultures. And so I think that has Comes into play. And then yeah, pregnancy is another, another time where we can see a lot of um, pigment forming oral contraceptive pills. So birth control pills, again, high, so estrogen, whether that's in pregnancy or from birth control pills or from um, hormone replacement therapy, all predisposes to increased pigmentation and melasma. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my, you know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, well, we should look at how What the microbiome looks like in somebody on a birth control pill versus right right, because we know that hormonal influences are huge in terms of the bacteria that lives on our skin
0: and not just bacteria the fungus as well so like now yeah so now I'm thinking about like malassezia and we do know that certain like uh, certain um, fungus actually cause uh, production of azalec acid, I believe, and right, the cause. Right, exactly. So yeah,
1: no, I acid. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So is there an opposite phenomena where we have fungus that can do the opposite? I mean, really Correct. have we, has any, I need to look and see if anybody's investigated that because that's a very interesting thing. Should we be using antifungals for melasma? Right. Um, cause it's, you know, one of the reasons I'm thinking through all this is because we, we, we recently talked about, um, fungal acne and how, uh, while we, while we tend to call things acne vulgaris on the face, there have been case studies where people have had, right. you know, recalcitrant acne vulgaris, and when they used antifungals like nystatin orally, it goes away. And so you ask yourself, well, why? Why is it? Because it didn't itch. It didn't, you know, it was. We get it with trunkal acne. Why that would work, but why is it with? Yeah. What, so my my th- question is in my head: Are we misdiagnosing or making things more simple in our head about A equals B versus because we're not thinking through? you know, all All this stuff. Yeah. Um, So, Uh, all right. So now we're going to have to get into a clinical study together and figure this out. But yeah, you know, and now I'm
1: thinking, okay, well, because right, the amount of fungus that's living on your skin and the certain colonies of bacteria, they're going to, there's going to be pressures to squeeze one or the other out. So it's also right, the balance between those two and how,
0: yeah. hundred percent. And even more interesting is that I've read publications. So a lot of people get scared with the word biofilm. They, they think it's a bad curse word in yep. dermatology, but frankly, biofilms are how all microbes establish themselves on our bodies and in our gut. Biofilm actually protects the good ones so that they can keep us healthy. And so, um, but there's research that has been shown that um, fungus can actually commandeer bacterial uh, biofilm. And so, I'm wondering whether certain conditions, certain hormonal conditions, certain bacteria, certain strains of bacteria, Um, can contribute to this particular phenomena. And of course, we're just kind of spitballing ideas uh, here. But, uh, you know, the reason why I think it's fascinating is because we're already observing certain things with uh, the microbiota, like um, we know that... C. acnes actually produces something in its ferment that is antifungal. We you know propionic acid. It has right. been shown that at 0.5 percent propionic acid in the, uh, the the in the ferment of C. acnes actually can reduce significantly fungal infection. Um, and so there was a publication that just came out that it wasn't something we did, but it was something that we've observed right. in our clinic as well. And so well, I'm not. It. I mean, it's it's for me this is all fascinating because. I'm that person that um, my professors used to get mad at me because they're like, Thomas, you don't have to reinvent the wheel for everything, you know? (laughs) So so I would, yeah. (laughs) But sometimes it it takes somebody to ask the question, are we doing things right? You know?
1: And I think that, I, I do think it's a really good point because we're in a lot of the work that you guys have looked, you looked at barrier function and, how that changes with these microbes. Mm-hmm. You know, in melasma, there are defects in barrier function and in, um, you know, and in the interaction between the upper and the lower part of the skin and even the blood vessel environment that is feeding the skin. Mm-hmm. And all of that is is very intimately connected with, Um, with the
0: microbiome right so again this is one reason why for me um, as we progress in dermatology and medicine skin science and medicine it's very important that we start to think of uh, the need for skin biome care versus just skin care because you know it's one of those things where it's a it's an eye rolly type of nuance but it really is important because just like you're alluding to when things are complicated you have to assess all possibilities not just Oh, it must be a human genetic or human issue solely because what lives in and on our skin that's not human is affected by the things that we produce. So, really quickly, let's. uh, What what were we looking like for time? Uh, Thirty. Of. Okay, so we got we got about ten more minutes, I think. Yeah. All right, and so uh, let's let's move on to um, the 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 nuance of genetics as far as. Gender. Tell me why you think uh, I, I can tell you what I think, but I want to hear what yeah. you think about why females are affected more than males, and is it like a, a similar phenomena to why females tend to get cellulite more than males? You know,
1: yes. I think I, I do think that that is a very, actually, a really great comparison. So, as we mentioned, the estrogen environment right can predispose to melasma, and the estrogen to testosterone and other hormonal balance in men versus women is very different. Um, There's actually some interesting work where they look at men who have prostate cancer who are on therapy to block testosterone, their incidence of melasma goes up, right? Because that relative balance and change in hormonal environment um, is very different. And so that is one of, I think one of the big reasons that that is more common
0: in women than men. Okay, so so hold on. You just raised something that I'm I'm curious to ask. You said if they block testosterone, it co- it's more prevalent to melasma. So estrogen isn't is estrogen a byproduct of testosterone, or is it made independently as well? It's made independently. Okay. All right. So basically, it's it's basically when you don't make the testosterone, you're only making estrogen, and therefore okay. Yes. Right. So I think
1: that there's there, like, there's two things. Increase in estrogen actually can change gene expression um, that is integral into the pathway of pigment production. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's one thing. And then there's also the relative balance of estrogen and testosterone that can have an impact on a lot of different um, skin environments.
0: Interesting. and I, So that makes me ask the question, are you familiar with um, androgen insensitivity syndrome? Yes. Do you know any prevalence stats for people with, I know that's not a, a hugely prevalent <laughs> state, but I wonder if <laughs> they had get melasma and whether or not there's an issue with them.
1: Uh, I don't know of any direct studies that look at the incidence. and in But it would be a really interesting population to look at, it right? It would,
0: right? Because the reason I ask is because there's populations that we find things like, for instance, finasteride was found through that pseudohermaphroditic population. And so I'm wondering whether if we could study some of these unique um, syndromes uh, that might shed some light on this.
1: Yeah, no, I think it, it would be a really interesting population to look at. And I should tap some of my patients who do all this AI and have them then call through a bunch of yes. <laughs> right? like, what might be different in, yeah.
0: That might be the next unicorn company. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I, I need to get a, I need to get stock in that because I just, I thought it up. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's talk about, because we, we talked a little about um, treatments for melasma traditionally and mm-hmm. some, we touched on some about what you do now, um, but- What is kind of like, if I have melasma and I come into your practice, what do you do? What do you give me? Um, What should the consumers, the non-physicians that are listening to this, what should they take away? Should they try at home to do it themselves? Should they, is there something they can do themselves or is, is it, I need to go see my dermatologist and what is my dermatologist going to do that's going to help me?
1: Right. So great question. So first and foremost is being very proactive uh, about ultraviolet sun protection. Um, You know, we talk about broad spectrum sunscreen, so things that block UVA and UVB. Uh, Zinc, uh, you know, zinc and titanium are two of the more common um, sunscreen ingredients that will be um, effective. The other piece that can be critical for melasma patients because we know more and more there are publications looking at visible light and even infrared spectrum. So heat type light mm-hmm. um, is blocking those. And the, in particular, visible light is often blocked by iron oxide, which is what gives sunscreen their tint,
0: right.
1: So tinted sunscreen can be helpful in melasma patients more so than in others.
0: Wait a second. you're saying that the uh, iron oxide that's found in makeup uh, yep. and tinted sunscreens actually yeah. is a it helps f- absorb the infrared. It helps
1: absorb the visible light.
0: The visible okay. Um,
1: infrared tends to be best blocked by at this point at least antioxidants of various sorts. So okay. there are antioxidants that can be put into sunscreens to help with infrared. Um, and then there are antioxidants that are made by microbes or that we put on our skin, right? Yes, um, there are. I, I love that you just
0: plugged that. <laughs> um, n- no, um, so I, let me ask you this about the sunscreen thing, though, because we talked about some controversies. And I would like to yeah. hear from a dermatologist because I hear different opinions from different dermatologists. And I want to hear your opinion on this. Yeah. Chemical or physical sunscreen and why?
1: I personally like physical sunscreens because I think, you know, I think there are two reasons that people will talk about ke- chemical versus physical. One is there's this idea that physicals, you know, they will block and reflect the sun and others absorb sun and you'll actually get heat into the skin. That's really probably, if you talk to a lot of chemists, that's not true. They all have the same Effect yeah. in terms of absorption or or um, reflectant of yeah. sun. I've had that debate the many times, yeah. and uh, yeah. people people
0: don't like to. I don't. It's not really a, a something you got to die on the sword for. But I think you're absolutely correct. It's yeah. all absorption. So
1: correct the for me, physical blockers tend to be less irritating. So right. for some people that have sensitivity to, you know, oxybenzene is the most common thing that will cause sensitivities to sunscreen. And in especially in a population like melasma, where they already have really sensitive skin, that any inflammation might increase pigmentation production. I want something that's going to be as inert as possible. Right. And so I tend to like physical blockers for that reason.
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, more and more I'm hearing um, the physician-based, the dermatology physician-based uh, lean towards... Physical the only problem is physical sunscreens tend to be very whitening cast and for darker skin types um, They they tend to shy away and go more towards chemicals even the the tinted ones sometimes are just they don't match their skin tone So what do you typically suggest for your darker skin types?
1: So right so even the tinted ones in certain skin tones can be like graying almost it's like Mm -hmm. you get like Yeah, Um, and so I am like, there's no universe. First of all, there's no universal tint. I'm right.
0: sorry. That's there
1: like is. It's impossible.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't the same as my partner who is African American. It just doesn't work. Um, So I often will have people either blend sunscreens because at least they're getting a sufficient quantity. Right. So, like, two fingers worth is what you want on your face, or layer with makeup. Right. Mm-hmm. So, if you find one that you th- that you think is mattifying that you like as a primer, but and then you can put makeup over the top of that, then you're getting that added boost of the iron oxide. You're getting right. more protection from the visible light. Um, and so that can be helpful.
0: Yeah, so because men are not as affected uh, by melasma, women tend to wear makeup more often than men. Although yeah, right. in today's world, that's not always the case, but more often I'd say <laughs> as a rule. Um, and yeah. so uh, I would say it makes it, a nice kind of uh reason why you don't need to worry so much about that white cast. If you're going to wear a base on yeah. top of it, actually, uh, Angela, who's not here today. She told me yesterday, um, that one of the things that she's been doing is mixing her base with, uh, the sunscreen. One of the sunscreens is in the biojupe <laughs> line. And she said it, Matt, cause she used to love this Tom Ford product. It was a tinted sunscreen and they stopped making it. And so she said it basically is better than the Tom Ford thing when she mixes it. And I was like, hey get creative <laughs> no go for it yeah. Yeah. so anyway. and, and
1: that's i mean and that's part of it with sunscreen i do think you have to be willing to play around a little bit and figure out what and i know that can be off-putting for a lot of people right because it's like the texture and right. um, but but there are so many more elegantly formulated sunscreens now um that it, it is easier to find one that you find that you think is like tolerable
0: yeah it's it's just there's just so much um noise out there about what's killing the reefs and what's killing you and it's it's just very difficult and so that's where the dermatologists really come in and and, uh you know even with in the dermatology community there's a lot of noise because there's different people that have their own brands and you know and so it, it becomes very i think sunscreens spf is one of the hardest things to find one for that's right for you and a lot of people get discouraged and just don't wear it because, you know, for them, it's like, I don't even know what's what anymore. So I just don't wear <laughs> sunscreen. Right. So, Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I think for women who have melasma, that's a very big message to them that if this is one of the biggest ways to actually mitigate it, even though you can't do- treat the disease state at a low cost, um, you're saying that you say, let's go for the physical first. If you need to match your skin tone, try to ma- mix your base with it. But do wear sunscreen. That's probably number one, what you would suggest from what I'm hearing.
1: Yeah, that's the, and one of the really interesting things, and I think this is like a little impromptu experiment, when people started working from home and sheltering in place more with COVID, Mm -hmm. I had a whole bunch of patients that came in and they said, I don't understand why my pigmentation is getting worse. I'm not going out as much. And I was like, "Well, are you using your sunscreen while you're while you're working next to your window at home?" And they were like, "No, I'm inside." I was like, "Well, UVA comes through
0: glass,
1: <laughs> so for people that have melasma, they have to be using it really yeah. diligently, whether you're indoors or outdoors, and that can be very difficult."
0: Yeah, I think that that's just a lack of uh, people knowing how UV works, and right, you know. Correct. Additionally, there's UV that comes out of some light sources as well. Um, you know, if you've ever worked in the lab and you've taken a sticker off of a five year old piece of machine, you're like, why is this white? And that's yellow because of UV, but, um, yeah. I do think we need to wrap up soon. Okay. So, yeah. uh, let's, I just want to ask, is there any other treatments other than sunscreen that you say they should look for?
1: So, I mean, there's a lot of different treatments for melasma. One thing that I think is newer, that's interesting is transexamic acid. Okay. Um, transexamic acid is used in topicals, so in skincare, although it is tricky as a skincare ingredient because it's not very stable and certain, sometimes you need high percentages to get good efficacy, but those percentages don't sit well on a shelf, and so that can be a little bit difficult. It has been studied as, like, an actual, people will inject it, um, and then we are now using it more and more orally in select populations.
0: Right. So
1: this is a pill that actually was, you know, traditionally is used to stop bleeding in an obstetrics setting. So somebody has excessive bleeding after delivering a baby. Um, but it because it works on a molecule called um, plasminogen and plasmin, mm-hmm. uh, it can have an effect on the vasculature and that what like that whole environment we were talking about that may affect the um the melanocyte and the melanin production. And so we will actually use it as an oral pill for short periods of time in melasma populations. And that's something that's really within the last couple of years we've started doing.
0: Okay. So Everybody, if you have melasma, ask your doctor about transexamic <laughs> acid, and there's probably different ways in which you can introduce it, and we won't get yeah. into that for lack of yeah. time. But uh, Dr. Hausauer, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. If the uh, community that's listening would like to find you on social media, where should they look?
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. I am primarily on Instagram at Dr. Haasauer. so V-R in my last name. And then our website is aesthetics.com. And that's A-E-S-T-H-E-T-X, like aesthetic and treatment in one.
0: Yeah. And so if you're in the Silicon Valley, you should look for her. And uh, she's probably in demand with all those media moguls, but you might be able to squeeze in there if you're lucky. Um, All right. Thanks, Dr. Hausauer. Thank you, Amelia. And I will be in touch with you, hopefully in a not too distant future. And thank... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening or watching. We hope that you were able to glean something from this conversation. If you want to find more about us, please visit www.crownlaboratories.com, or you can follow me personally at Instagram at dr.t.hitchcock, and we will see you next time. Goodbye for now.